The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. All right, well, good morning, good morning. Have you guys had a good week? Everybody had a good week? Welcome to Story City, by the way. We're so glad that you're here. My name is Matt, and uh, I'm excited to be teaching from the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. By the way, if you're new, thank you for being here. Uh, gosh, we, we, we really consider it a privilege and an honor for you to spend a little bit of time with us this morning. We would love to see you at the First Steps table after the service. Now, if you are new today, you're walking into the second week of a series we're calling This Absurd Life. By the way, we have some extremely creative and talented people in our church. Don't, I love living in LA for the fact that there are so many insanely talented people. In fact, it's a bit humbling, um, and there are days when I'm extremely insecure about leading so many talented people, And uh, but I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for our creative team. We had new people in the band this morning, and uh, just talent everywhere, all over our city. I'm so excited uh, to see that talent being used um, to put Jesus in his proper place. And so, hey, uh, we're in the second week of a series called This Absurd Life. Uh, we're actually reading through the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, I've been excited about teaching through this book for a long time. And um, I, I spent a lot of time last week preparing for last week's message. And I got done with the first service and I went to the green room and I actually went out of the green room and got where nobody could see me, I was like, that was the worst message I've ever preached in my entire life. And, uh, and I was so excited about preaching Ecclesiastes, and, um, and I'm excited today. And what I've realized in my pursuit and study of this book is that it's a hard book. It's a hard book to understand. It's an even harder book to teach. And so we're going to jump into the second week of this series. And so last week, um, where we were was in verse 2 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Solomon is posturing his life thesis, if you will. Solomon is the writer of this book. Just a moment, we're going to go back and remember who Solomon is and what he did. And so Solomon postures in, in this book, in verse 2, his life thesis, okay? And so he uses this word that we talked about last week. If you weren't here, the word is called hevel in Greek. Look at your neighbor and say hevel. Go ahead and tell him hevel. Just say it right now. I want you to say it out loud because I'm going to use that word many times. Go ahead and look at your neighbor and say hevel. Tell him hevel. <clears throat> Solomon uses this word 39 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And so the essence of the meaning that Solomon is, is, is posturing here, his life thesis, after he's after he spent all of his life, he's looking over his shoulder and he's saying, what was the point of it all, is that it's absurd. That was the meaning of the word hevel. And so he postures this idea that life is absurd. And so today we're going to jump into one of the absurdities that, that Solomon has discovered as he has walked through life, as he ex has experienced all of these things in his life. And it's important for us to remember that the man who is writing the book of Ecclesiastes today is a man that's posturing before us um, his experience with his wisdom, with his wealth, with his power. And so this guy has a unique perspective to offer to humanity, and specifically those of us who live in Los Angeles. And so he's got every resource available to him. He's got every resource available to him, and so he explores uh, pleasures and power and wisdom and accomplishing great works and accumulating great possessions, only to get to the end of it all. And he makes this word. It was all hevel. It was all hevel. It was meaningless. It was absurd. It was pointless. But before he got to that conclusion, he starts the search for the meaning of life by using his mind. 
He begins this search like he's, he's uh, this is a man writing, by the way. We can read his story in the book of 1 Kings chapter 1 through verse, uh, uh, chapter 11. And if you have time this week, I would encourage you to read over the life of Solomon. And what we know about Solomon is that he spent the very first part of his life pursuing God. And in fact, he asked God for extraordinary wisdom, and God granted him that wisdom. And then at some point in his life, Solomon walked away from God. In fact, chapter 11 of 1 Kings tells us in verse 4 that likely the very reason that Solomon walked away from God was because of all of the wives that he had. That makes sense. I'm like, okay, yeah, I get it. He had 700 wives. And apparently these wives uh, were from different faiths. They were from different places. They were from different countries. They were different ethnicities. And they brought all of their perspectives on life, their religious perspectives. And Solomon married many of them for political reasons. And when he brought all of these wives into the process, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, tells us that he began to lose his way. He began to walk away from God because he was trying to please everyone. He was a man who had a spiritual temperature that was, um, that was appeasing to everyone. And so before he begins the meaning of life, we, we have to remember that Solomon was a man who walked with God, and then later on in life, he walked away from God, and now he's writing this book near the end of his life, and he's looking back at everything that he had accomplished, everything that he had learned, everything that he had done, and he was saying, what was the point of it all? Because from my perspective, and he uses the phrase, under the sun, from where I sit, it all seems like it was just absurd. And so he's writing from this perspective, having walked away from God. And so he's on this pursuit towards the meaning of life. And this morning, we're going to look at verse 12 through 18. And Solomon is going to talk about how his pursuit began. And he's going to talk about how his pursuit began with his mind and trying to figure it out and try to understand, try to gain wisdom to try to clarify what it is was the point of life. Now, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I apologize this morning. I typically love to introduce a sermon with some sort of illustration. And uh, there's just so much here this morning that I just said, you know what, we gotta get right into it. So Ecclesiastes 1, starting in verse 12. Let me pray for us real quick. God, this is your word, this is your church, these are your people. God, I pray that you speak to us deeply. Clarify in our hearts, Lord, um, this pursuit of, about the meaning and towards the meaning of life, God. And God, I pray that there's anybody who's unclear in this auditorium this morning. God, by the spirit of the living God, you would bring clarity in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. So I told you last week the way we were going to do this through the book of Ecclesiastes is that we were going to walk verse by verse. I, that's my preferential way of, of teaching and preaching in a, in a setting like this. And so today we're just going to do that. I'm going to start in verse 12, Bob, and then we're going to make our way all the way down to verse 18. And Solomon's going to make this posture about the wisdom that he gained and whether or not it had any sort of point. And by the way, it's, no, it's not surprising that, that knowing the history of who Solomon was, that he he pursues the meaning of life through his mind. The word that he uses for himself here in verse 12, he says, I, the teacher, other translations say the preacher, other translations say the quester. Um, he's using this term to describe himself, and some commentators would describe the word as endowed with reason and using it, wise from experience of life. And by the way, Solomon had all kinds of experiences in life. They also describe it as a person who is skillful with regard to the affairs of both human and divine. And Solomon, in seven times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, uses this phrase that I thought in my mind. Solomon believed that the greatest wisdom on earth was contained in his mind, and there was no greater wisdom. <clears throat> 
And so he says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, let's remember who Solomon was just for a moment. If you missed last week, if you've never been in church before, I think it's good and instructive to understand the man who is teaching us today. And so he says, I was the king over Israel in Jerusalem. He was the son of David, who is considered um, the greatest king who ever lived. David was the man who God promised that through his bloodline, um, Jesus would eventually come. So Solomon is the uh, birthright to David. He is the son of David, and uh, he was a man who asked God for great wisdom in 1 Kings chapter 3. And then God said, you know what? Because you asked, that was a great question. Thank you for asking. God granted him wisdom. And so we see early on in the book of 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon applies the wisdom that he has. In fact, there's a story of, of, um, of the scripture calls them two harlots who had two children at the same time. They lived in the same house. And one night, one of the children died and so the next morning, um, they come to Solomon and they say to Solomon, Solomon, my child um, is living and her child died in the night, but she switched her child with my child and my child is the one that's actually living. So give me my child. She tried to steal my child from me. Is that confusing? It seems confusing. And Solomon in his wisdom says, well, then I tell you what to do. They're fighting over whose child is living. And Solomon says, bring me a sword. I'll cut the child in half and each of you can have half of the child. And so what we hear in 1 Kings chapter 3 is the woman who we believe was actually the mother of the living child said, no, please, Solomon, do not cut the child in half. She can have the child. In other words, we saw the heart and the wisdom of the woman who was actually the birth mother of the child. And we see Solomon applying this extraordinary wisdom in dealing with all matters of life. In fact, scripture tells us that because of his wisdom, peace reigned among the people of God. And so here's Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, the author and collector of wisdom literature. We said last week he wrote the book of Proverbs. He wrote the book of Song of Solomon. And uh, not only that, but we're, we're told that he wrote over a thousand songs in his lifetime. Um, his interest, he was an expert in natural history. Um, there's a plant named after Solomon called Solomon's Seal. It's said to have the symbol of the Star of David at its roots. The flowers are supposedly used as a love potion, whatever. And so... <clears throat> Solomon was also, this is something you may not know about him, Solomon was also regarded as a worker of magic. What are you, a worker of magic, yeah. Um, so in the medieval times, Solomon was highly regarded among occult practitioners. In fact, there was a book that was written during the medieval times called The Key of Solomon. It was, uh, it was an occult book that's attributed to him, and it's one of his most important um, in influential and important textbooks for medieval magicians. In fact, today, I looked it up this morning, you can go on Amazon and find the book, The Key of Solomon. It was a book that magicians looked to. It was the standard for magic in its day. It still is today. It's still widely available. New Age adherents still read it today. In modern terms, we would describe Solomon as the man who had everything. Jonathan Goldsmith, the most interesting man in the world, has nothing on Solomon. We would say that Solomon was the ultimate celebrity. He had charisma, he had wealth, he had power, and he coupled all of it with this sort of pluralistic spirituality that made him acceptable to everyone. That's the man who's writing to us today. His greatest accomplishment was probably building the temple. 
David's dream, his father's dream was to build this temple to God. The people of God wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They set up the temple. They set up this tabernacle. And finally, when God brought them to the place where they were supposed to go, David's dream was to build the temple. Finally, a resting place, a dwelling place for God. David passes. The temple is never built, yet Solomon, his son, his greatest accomplishment was fulfilling the dream of his father and building the temple. And when we read Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, as he's dedicating this temple, we see a man who we just believe is intensely, deeply spiritual, a man who is deeply faithful to God. You just have to read the words that he prayed to God when, when he dedicated this temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. Yet there's a departure after 1 Kings chapter 8 where Solomon breaks away from his faith, he breaks the covenant that he has with God. And he tries to syncretize all of these religions that exist in his own household because of inter intermarriage and, and for the sake of political expediency and probably a lot of other reasons, Solomon willfully disobeyed God. And so what we find in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, is that near the end of his life, Solomon's heart turned from the Lord and before other gods. And so we have a man now who's writing to us from that perspective. A man who followed God, yet later in life, he's now no longer, his heart is no longer turned towards God. Now listen, that's important to know this morning, because when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you think, just naturally, just because it's in the Bible and these things are being said, we just naturally think, this is the perspective of a man of great faith. But the perspective that we're reading here from Solomon is not a man of great faith in this moment. This is the perspective of a man who has walked away from God. Now listen to his pursuit of wisdom trying to explain the meaning of life. Verse 13, it says this, and I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. He uses this phrase many times throughout the book. And I just wanna repeat often throughout the course of this series because as you read this text, you're gonna be like, wow, wow, wow. A man of God said that wisdom was, was absurd. A man of God said all of these things were absurd. Like, like we read other places in scripture where those things are not absurd, but we have to remember Solomon is writing from his perspective under the sun. And then he says, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind in verse 13. Now verse 14 says this, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. He uses the same word, hevel. They're all absurd, a chasing after the wind. So Solomon begins his pursuit over the meaning of life with the most profound of human qualities, and, and he's very familiar with it, by the way, and that is wisdom. A man who is gifted with wisdom and a collector of wise sayings, he has the means to thoroughly investigate the purpose of life, or so he thinks, and his conclusion was this. I have investigated every in intellectual thought according to the meaning of life. And his conclusion was, in the NASB version of the Bible, it says, he describes it as a grievous task. In other versions of the Bible that we're reading here, the NIV, it's described as uh, a burden. And so Solomon describes his pursuit of intellectual knowledge as an exhausting task where there's pointless exploration over the wisdom to try to figure out with my mind um, what the meaning of life was. Now, what we find out is, is that this was an exploration, we read here in verse 14, that God set man on. This was the exploration that God, that God put the task before us. 
it would seem like there's like this treadmill of hopelessness as man pursues the meaning of life. And we get to this point where like, well, that just can't make sense. That doesn't add up. There's still loopholes in my thought process as to the meaning of life. And what we find here is Solomon says, that was God's point. God's setting you on this task, this treadmill of hopelessness. Why? Because eventually you will come to a place where you will realize that, you're gonna, that you need to trade this futility of hopelessness of life and replace it with faith. And that's exactly what happens in the parable of the prodigal son. You remember that story in the book of Luke chapter 15 where the prodigal son says, I want my wealth, I want my wisdom, I'm going to find my own way in life. He walks away from his father until he realizes that that life was pointless and he comes back to the father. And Solomon is saying, that's what happens when you try to use your mind to figure out the meaning of life. It's going to lead you to a place where you realize, where you come to this understanding that it's all futility. And at that point, you need to replace futility with faith in God. Verse 15, Solomon is going to give us a proverb. He gives us two proverbs in this passage here. And so what he does in verse 15 is he tries to sum up what he's trying to say in verse 13 and 14. And this is the proverb that Solomon says here. He says, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. You're like, okay, what does that mean? This is true Solomon. He introduces this proverb, and he's trying to expand on what he said in verse 13 and in verse 14. And in essence, what Solomon is saying is if you try to discover the meaning of life, and in the process, you leave God out of the equation, the conclusion that you're going to arrive at is this disillusioned, illusionary um, meaning of life. Um, As a pastor, I have the privilege often, and we have the privilege often, of dealing with people's purpose. Frequently, um, people come to us, and they want to just, uh, just dialogue about their purpose in life and the meaning of life. And I just want to say, over 17 years of, of ministering to people, I have heard some insanely creative theories about the purpose of life. Um, People are insanely creative about why they're here, how they got here, what meaning on earth is like. And some of those would make great cinematic productions. They really would. In fact, some of those we see on TV. In fact, I'm like, you watch that movie and that's where you got that from. That's awesome cinematic production, but that's terrible to explain the purpose and the meaning of life. But listen to me. This is what I really believe. I believe the confusion oftentimes that we have over purpose and meaning and why I'm here is because we're looking through the wrong lens. When we look through the lens of culture and our own mind and and, and the ways that we can think about life, but yet when we overlay that perspective with the perspective of faith, I say when when we look at all of life from the worldview of Scripture, then life really begins to make sense. But listen, what Solomon says but to leave God out of the intellectual pursuit. And the process of trying to discover meaning means that we're left with this sort of distorted illusion, this distorted conclusion that cannot be straightened out until God is put back into the equation. And so as a consequence, what Solomon says is that I did that. I I explored every conclusion known to man. And what I found was the conclusion that I arrived at, it had no substance. It had no substance. That's the word that he uses, hevel. It had no substance. I plowed right through life. And when I got there, I realized it had no substance. Last week, we talked about the cloud. As a kid, you look up. By the way, on Monday, I don't know if you noticed this, Monday there were beautiful, full, thick clouds here in Los Angeles. And I joke with my wife. I'm like, see, I talked about it, and there it is. God put it. And so, and so, 
As a kid, you see these beautiful fluffy clouds and they look just like, like this is where angels lie and play their harps and it's amazing. And then you get in a plane and you plow right through and you're like, there's nothing to this. And Solomon says, that's what happened to me as I applied my mind to the meaning of life. I realized that the conclusion I arrived at was one that had zero substance. Why? Why? Because he left God out of the equation. And that's what Solomon intends to communicate here in verse 15. Now Solomon says this. He makes sort of three statements about why pursuing wisdom is absurd. And here's the first. He has something to write with. He can write it down. The first reason Solomon says that pursuing wisdom is absurd is because you can never really figure out the ways of God. You can never really figure out the ways of God. Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon says this. No one can discover the work that God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, granted, some of the work you may be able to figure out. Some of the work you may get to the point where you're like, I understand why this happened. But then there's a whole nother plethora of, uh, of, of, of events and circumstances in life. And you're like, I can't understand that. And it frustrates me. And God, why is it happened? Oftentimes, there's times when I find myself between two worlds. Like I can't, be, I can't become an atheist because there's too much, uh, there's too much wisdom. There's too much um, evidence that God exists. But then oftentimes you're like, how, how do you believe in a good God because that who controls everything because of the crazy things that happen, right? Like that's the book of Job. That's the book of Job. Job shows us that God is always at work doing something in your life. You just may not have the perspective to be able to see it because you're living under the sun. You know the story of Job? And Job's like, God, why is all of this happening? Well, we know in Job chapter one, we see Satan came to God and Satan says, Job's not gonna follow you if all of life is taken from him. And God says, no, 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 I've already seen it, I know. So if you wanna put Job to the test, go for it. I know in the end, Job's gonna follow me. He's gonna be faithful to me. And so Job's looking at this whole scenario and circumstance, like I lost everything. God, why is this happening? And the perspective from over the sun was that God used this in his life as a moment to bring him back to the face of God. And sometimes we're like that. We, we see one or two things happening, but we can't see the thousands of other things that are happening from God's perspective. One pastor that I love and respect says at any point, God is pursuing about 10,000 different things in your life, and you are probably only aware of about three of them. And Solomon says that pursuing wisdom as an end to, to your life will only serve to frustrate you because you'll never be able to figure out the ways of God. Now, there's a second reason Solomon says that pursuing wisdom is absurd. Verse 16, he says this, I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much wisdom and knowledge. And then he says, after I, I acquired that wisdom and knowledge, I applied myself to the understanding of it. And also, by the way, he says not just wisdom and knowledge, but he says the opposite of wisdom and knowledge. I applied myself to madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. We see this phrase over and over and over again. Now listen to me. I need to continually remind you, Solomon is speaking from where he stands He's walked away from God, and now he's trying to figure out why life can make sense apart from the perspective of his faith. And the way he begins to pursue that perspective and that meaning is through his mind. And Solomon says, I did it all. I had more wisdom from, than anyone who came behind me and anyone who will come after me. I was a wise man, and then I put that into practice. And what I found was, 
There's no substance to it. It's a chasing after the wind. What Solomon really realized was that wisdom and experience will not solve every problem in your life. Oftentimes we go through life and we try to live on these these explanations about life. Like, like trying to explain why this happened and why that happened. And, and, and oftentimes, if you're a person who tries to live on explaining why this happened and why that happened, you're going to be a very, very unhappy person for at least two reasons. The first reason is this, because on this side of heaven, there are no explanations for why some things just happen. There just aren't. We, we can't explain it away. We can't understand it with our mind. And by the way, God's not obligated. He's not obligated to explain it to us anyway. In fact, I, I, I believe that if God tried to explain some things to us, we wouldn't understand it anyway, right? Secondly, if you're a person who tries to live on explanations, you're going to live a very unhappy life. Why? Because God has ordained that people live by his promises, not by explanations. That's what scripture means when it says we live by faith. What does he say? Not by what? Sight. Blessed are they who have not seen, and yet they have believed. John chapter 20. That's us today. We believe in Jesus if you are a believer in Jesus, though you did not walk with Jesus as the disciples walked with him. By the way, if anybody was equipped to solve the problems of life, it had to have been Solomon. And then he could tell us what life was all about. He was the person. He was the wisest of men. People came from all over to hear his wisdom. His wealth was beyond calculation. He pursued wisdom. And then he tells us, not only did I pursue wisdom, I pursued the opposite of it. And the end result was nothing was too hard for him, yet he found it to be futile. And so these advantages didn't allow Solomon to find all the answers he was seeking. In fact, Solomon's greatest wisdom added to his difficulties. So Solomon makes a second idea about the absurdity of pursuing wisdom apart from God. And the thought is this. Pursuing wisdom is absurd because the more you know, the more you realize you just don't know. The more you know, the more you realize you just don't know, right? And everybody who is in a class today, master's degree, high school, middle school, the crowd said, amen. Everything you learn, you realize there's more you don't know. Listen, you know my story. I was a youth pastor for 14 years. When I started youth ministry, I had no kids. Listen to me. And I had a lot of sermons about how to parent kids. I read a lot of books about how to parent kids. I planned sermon series about how to parent kids. I had parents who came in my office to teach them how to parent kids. I had kids. Listen to me. Now I have no sermons. I have no experience to convey to you. The only wisdom I often have is look at your kid and say, I don't know what the hevel is going on with him. (laughs) Sometimes I will listen to parents and I'm like, listen, the best advice I could possibly give you is this. Like, go try it out and just come back to me and let me know if it works, right? Solomon says, trying to gain wisdom as a way of mastering life, it's foolish. You learn everything you can about parenting, and then you look at the kid and you're like, well, I just have no clue. (laughs) Wisdom does not guarantee success, by the way. Time and chance affect all of us. Bad luck affects all of us. 
And so Solomon comes to the second proverb here in chapter 1, verse 18, and he's going to try to explain what he meant by verse 16 and 17. I find often when he gets to the proverb, I'm like, I need a proverb to explain the proverb to understand what you're trying to say. But this is what he says in verse 18. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. This is Solomon's second proverb about wisdom. In essence, Solomon is saying knowledge in itself can never make you happy. Why? In the first place, it's, you're just never going to satisfy the desire for knowledge. The increase in knowledge only heightens the awareness of our ignorance, right? Look, we can study philosophy, we can study sociology, we can study psychology, and we're able to understand our own nature. Uh, we may be able to look at our behaviors and address some idiosyncrasies, some, some imperfections, but the trouble is we have no answer in and of ourselves in psychology and sociology and other avenues of life, philosophy, to be able to change those things about us. When we get to the passage, it talks about the law of sin and death in Romans 8 two. No philosophy, psychology, philosophy, sociology has an explanation for those things. And Solomon says you're trying to figure out all of these ways of man, all of these ways of living, yet you have no answer for the law of sin and death. You have no answer for the problems presented by life itself. There's a, there's a guy in, in our culture that's insanely like influential um, and, and, and he's got this deal about like, like, like reading and just, and, and, just, and just gaining all the knowledge you can about whatever field of life that you do. And I'm intrigued by this guy because he's incredibly successful. But he's also posturing this same philosophy that Solomon is posturing whereby you gain all of this knowledge, read all of these books, work as hard as you possibly can and then at that point, that implies that you will innately be successful if you do those things. The problem is you may be successful. You may be better than your neighbor. You may be better than your coworker. Yet Solomon says, in the end, that still won't answer the deep down problems of life. That will never answer the meaning and purpose of life. And the problem I have with this guy who postures literally to the world millions of followers through his media company in New York City, is that he postures this idea like, like, like this is the meaning, this is the purpose, work hard, gain more knowledge, do everything you can and be ultimately successful. Yet the problem is he has no perspective of faith to see that in the end is going to be meaningless. It's gonna be futile. You don't have to guess who I'm talking about. I'm not even gonna tell you, but. And so Solomon says, knowledge in itself can never make you happy, one, because it'll never satisfy you, but two, here's the reason why. Ultimately, knowledge and wisdom heightens our awareness of sin. Now listen to what I'm gonna say to you. Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. In other words, Jesus exposes this knowledge about who they really are. And now that he's exposed this knowledge about who they really are, now they have to do something about it. And the reality is oftentimes, that knowledge about who we really are can increase our sorrow and our grief in life. Why? 
can increase our sorrow and grief because sometimes, oftentimes, people never really ponder the meaning of life. As a pastor, I find it incredibly challenging oftentimes to stand in front of hundreds of people every single Sunday knowing that many of us are from a secular perspective where we have no perspective of faith. And oftentimes as believers and not just pastors, we think we can speak to secular people about their sin and the guilt and the shame that they feel over their sin. The reality is secular people with no perspective of faith don't experience guilt and shame over their sin like we do. Why? Because they never think about it. They never ponder it. There's not knowledge and wisdom there to say, I know why there's guilt and shame because of my behavior. They, they don't understand that in the garden, Adam and Eve chose a way of life that was antithetical to God. And when they did so, guilt and shame entered. How do we know? Because they hid from God. And secular people don't have that perspective. And oftentimes we think we can speak to secular people about this idea of sin and guilt and shame. And the reality is, is that they never even think about it in the first place, but for believers. For believers, the knowledge of sin and death oftentimes increases our sorrow and grief in this world. I grieve over my sin oftentimes. I grieve, I'm sorrow over what happens in a South Florida school. And by the way, not because philosophy told me or psychology told me or sociology told me, because I can know why evil exists in the world when I have the perspective of the scriptures laying the lens in front of me. And I can grieve over it. And I can be sorrowful over it. And Solomon says sometimes when you live a righteous life, when you pursue this life and you understand the wisdom and knowledge that comes along with being a believer, the third reason why wisdom is absurd is because living righteously does not guarantee smooth sailing. Some of you may be exploring this idea of faith and you're like, what, what is it all about? Is it, is it just a way to help me cope with my problems? Is it a better way to, to deal with, with my my parenting issues and my marriage issues. And the reality is when we come to the understanding and the knowledge and the wisdom of God, oftentimes that brings us to a place of sorrow. And oftentimes when you live righteously, it does not guarantee that everything's gonna go smooth in life. Ecclesiastes 10.8 says, he who digs a pit may fall into it and a serpent may bite him who breaks through the wall. In other words, he's saying, if you do bad things, oftentimes bad things will happen to you. But listen to what he says in the very next verse. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them. The one who splits logs may be endangered by them. Sometimes the one who works honestly also gets hurt. And that's why life can be so confusing and absurd. This perspective that we have of God, I told you last week, will be shattered that if I just do a good thing, God will do B, blessing thing. And that's not always how it goes. And you need to understand that, that sometimes when you live righteously, that doesn't mean that things are going to go well. And so Solomon fails at this first pursuit in explaining the meaning of life. He's played his ace card, his wisdom, and even that has been beaten. And so we repeat the same tragedy. I'm gonna use my mind to figure out why I'm here until we come to the realization that God holds all those trump cards. So what do you do with all this? The scientist says that the world is closed and nothing has changed. 
The historian tells us that life is a closed book and nothing is new. The philosopher tells us that life is a deep problem and nothing is understood. Now listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says. What it tells us about Jesus, it says Jesus Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he's miraculously broken into history to bring new life to everyone who trusts in him. Now this is important and I'm gonna be done. The editor here in this book does not leave us in the same place that Solomon leaves us. Solomon leaves us in this fatalistic like view of life. Like, oh, I should quit school. Oh, I should cancel my subscription to leader book summaries. Like it's foolish to read and understand and apply wisdom and knowledge. And the editor says, I'm not leaving you there. In fact, Solomon, remember, his perspective under the sun. The only thing he could think of was his mind. He didn't have the perspective of faith. The editor is gonna leave us in a place where we can believe that wisdom is a good thing and that with wisdom actually comes joy. So who can experience wisdom and joy? By the way, we need to understand that joy is the gift from God. It doesn't come automatically. You don't get it with riches. You don't get it with relationships. You don't get it with the knowledge. But listen, this is what the editor says. For to a person, Ecclesiastes 2, who is good in his sight, now, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. And then we stop there. We're like, that's it. I gotta go back. I gotta be good to my kids today. I gotta go back and I gotta be a better parent. I gotta be a better husband. I gotta be a better wife. I gotta be a better employee. For the, to the person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Listen to me. Who's pleasing in God's sight? You are. Why? Why? Because you're a child of God. Listen, listen, listen to the, listen here. How do you become pleasing to God? In Christ. The gospel is this, that Jesus Christ lived the Proverbs life. He did everything right. And then he died the Ecclesiastes death. He, he died the death that we deserve, the futile death that we deserve. He experienced the hevel that was brought on by our sin in Genesis 3. He went to hevel for us so that we can know all of the assurances, the certainty, the promises of God. Who says this? All things work together for the good of him who loves God, who are called according to his purpose. So he takes our place in heaven. Give us a life of meaning and security and absolute love before the eternal Father. God's not given this airtight philosophy, this ironclad wisdom, these guarantees of success. Listen to me, I need you to hear this this morning. Because oftentimes I hear as a pastor, pastor, I but I just want practically, like, like I just, here, here's practically. He hasn't given you ironclad guarantees of success if you do A, C, and D. What he has given to us is an airtight person to walk with us, whom we can hide during the changes of life. Jesus, the wisdom of God, he never changes. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for today. God, thank you for the wisdom that Solomon has imparted to us, God. God, I pray that you not let us forget perspective from under the sun is drastically different from your perspective. God, I pray for people in this auditorium who are plowing through life, God. God, who are one foot in front of the other sometimes, God, even though it's difficult. I pray for the people in this room, God, who woke up today and said, what's the point? Jesus, I pray by the spirit of the living God, I remember you did it to me at 17. Every day, what's the point? 
till finally the Spirit of God broke in and gave me a new lens and a new perspective to see through. Jesus, I pray that you would do that to us today. Let us be a people whose eyes, whose worldview is shaped by your perspective. Wisdom is good, and with wisdom comes joy when we see it through the lens over the sun, Lord. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.